Formally. So, uh, welcome everyone. I'm Alice Donald. I'm Associate Director at the Academy of Ideas uh, and the co-convener of the, uh, one of the co-conveners of the annual Battle of Ideas Festival. My colleague Ella Whelan is co-hosting this event tonight with me. Uh, if anything happens to me over the next uh, couple of hours or my broadband, uh, then Ella will jump into the hot seat. This is the ninth of our lockdown debates and we've also hosted lots of other forums and salons and book club discussions. It means that everyone in our office has worked right the way through this lockdown. Uh, and it means that uh, we continue to have expenses, even although we can't raise any money just now uh, through, through events. So if you can uh, support us in any way with a donation, either large or small, uh, then we'd be really grateful. And to do that, uh, then simply visit our website, academyofideas.org.uk forward slash donate. That URL should appear in the uh, chat box just now. And uh, you uh, give us a donation if, if you can. We'd be uh, very grateful. So, on with uh, tonight's discussion. Uh, it'll have escaped no one's notice that this week has been the Democratic National Convention. On this occasion, due to the pandemic, it's been a virtual online affair hemmed into a couple of hours each evening. Next week, it's the Republicans' turn. The Democrats at the moment have what seems like a fairly significant lead in the polls, although some polls suggest the lead is tightening. Uh, and as many point out, uh, the US, US elections don't really get going as a matter of uh, full democratic engagement until the conventions start. So I think in some ways there's all to play for uh, amongst the parties and the, and the candidates uh, over the next three months or so in the lead up to the election. And there are you know, obviously many unknowns. What will happen, for example, once Joe Biden emerges from his bunker basement? How will the pandemic affect the, content, the contest, not just in terms of its dev devastating impact on uh, jobs and people's livelihoods, but uh, also in terms of the fairly atomized public sphere uh, that, it's that it's created and which you'd inevitably expect to impact on the candidates' campaigns, what will be the impact of culture wars, not least because one recent survey suggested that 62% of Americans uh, have political views that they're now afraid to share. So could it be the case that the polls are entirely wrong so far? We just uh, kind of don't know that uh, at the moment. Of course, our panelists are all very welcome to put their money where their mouth is and to call the outcome. But to be honest, that's not really the point of this discussion. I think the way to treat this is rather an as an opportunity to get to grips with the important underlying social, cultural, political trends uh, and their impact. In that respect, it's worth noting the existence of what seems like an almost parallel uh, world to the pre-recorded videos of the convention so far, a world where uh, enormously significant events are occurring that the candidates uh, to some extent seem reluctant to address, whether that be the slide into disorder of American cities, questions over the future of key institutions such as the police, collapse of infrastructure from electricity systems to postal and fire services, the trade wars, rising tensions in the international sphere. And that's before we even get to the enormous question of the future of the domestic economy in, in, in America. So a huge amount potentially to discuss this evening. Let me introduce my panel in the order that they're going to speak in. So to start with, we'll hear from Saurabh Amari. Uh, Saurabh is the op-ed editor at the New York Post, uh, contributing editor to, to the Catholic Herald. He's uh, author of a number of uh, thought-provoking books, including a forthcoming work, The Unbroken Thread, 
uh, which is uh, discovering, uh, discovering the wisdom of tradition in an age of chaos that I think would be a very interesting uh, reflection in terms of the history wars that are currently raging in America. Then we'll hear from Wendy Kaminer, who's a lawyer, social critic and a writer, uh, author of numerous books, but to highlight just one, Free For All, Defending Liberty in America Today. Uh, Wendy was a signatory to the recent A Letter on Justice and Open Debate, uh, published uh, in Harper's Magazine a few weeks ago, and which has caused such a furore in the, in the time since. Third, we'll hear from Michael Tracy, who's a journalist based in Jersey City in New York, uh, a writer on US politics, uh, uh, for numerous publications, Vice, The Daily Beast, The American Conservative and The Guardian, so spanning uh, lots of different political persuasions. Michael's journalism and tweets, I think, have been fairly indispensable reportage over the recent times uh, as to what's going on in the ground uh, in, in American cities. So welcome to you, Michael. Really glad that you could join us tonight. Then we'll hear from Dr. Richard Johnson, uh, who's uh, here in the UK, the only one of our speakers here in the UK. Uh, Richard's a lecturer in US politics at Lancaster University. It's always worth looking out for his regular appearances in the media. He's author of the recently published The End of the Second Reconstruction, Obama, Trump and the rise and the crisis of civil rights that looks at the current threats uh, to democracy in America. And finally, uh, we'll hear from Her Helen Searles, who's based and works in Washington, Chief Operating Officer of Feature Story News and the Director of their Worldwide Operations overseeing its US and international bureaus. And to Helen uh, and to all the speakers, we're uh, extremely grateful that you've generously agreed to give us your time at uh, such a, a time when it's obviously a really busy moment for you. So just in terms of the format, uh, I've asked each of the panel to give us some quick opening thoughts for three, four minutes absolute maximum, just to kick us off uh, with their views on what's important about just now and what the trends are that they see. Uh, I can then pick up some of the themes with them, give a chance to comment on what they've heard from others, and then it'll be straight out to the audience uh, for all your questions and points. And I'll take groups of questions coming back to the panel fairly regularly to give them a chance uh, to respond. So um, over to you, uh, Sorab, for your uh, introdu introductory thoughts. Well, thank you very much for having me. I'm pleased to join this uh, as panel, but um, especially uh, Mark Tracy. Um, if, there, if there isn't a Michael Tracy fan club, uh, then I will happily start it. I learned so much from him. And uh, I'll tell you a personal anecdote that will see into the substance of my thoughts, uh, namely that in January, I kind of I unfairly picked on, on, uh, uh, on Mark because um, uh, we had both published uh, columns in the two New York tabloids. As you know, I work for the New York Post, but there's another one, the Daily News. In, uh, and uh, they, they both made the same point. I, well, mine was first. And this is a point of the contention, with, uh, uh, mainly that you know I argued that the success of Brexit, which went through finally in January, and the fact that the uh, impeachment um, case against uh, President Trump collapsed right next to each other, suggested a, a failure for transatlantic uh, elites. And he made the same point. Uh, and of course, I mean, I picked on him. Really, it was he was just a casualty of the New York tabloid wars because my argument is it wasn't as though it were a you know obscure chemical formula I had discovered 
two people could hit upon the same idea um, uh, independently. But why do I mention that anecdote? So apologies uh, for, for picking on you, but why do I mention that? Um, it's because uh, to give you a sweeping account of what I think is transpiring in the United States and um, the polarization, the political, outright political violence that you'll see, I think what you saw with the victory of, of Brexit across the Atlantic and the failure of the um, impeachment drive here in the United States both reflected uh, a deeper antagonism, um, which has to do with the fact that um, in 2015 and 2016, voters on both sides of the Atlantic um, uh, began to signal a deep dissatisfaction with the elite consensus that had governed the best, arguably since the end of, the, uh, end of World War II. Um, they felt that it wasn't uh, working for them and in inchoate in, in and sometimes angry and messy ways, I would argue they were uh, pushing for a politics of the common good, a politics that was more solidaristic, um, uh, that respected the will of voters on issues like immigration, um, that addressed the precarity um, the, the precarious quality of, of, of life under neoliberal regimes like the ones that had uh, governed the U.S. and Britain. And meanwhile, the elites, of course, reacted against this violently, not literal violence that would, come, that would take a few years to, to arrive, but right away, um, you know, they wanted to restore the pre-2015 consensus. It was unacceptable that Donald Trump had been, Trump had been elected. It was unacceptable that Britain, uh, Britain had voted to leave the European Union. It was unacceptable that Poles and Hungarians keep voting for populist parties. Um, they wanted the old neoliberal, neoconservative foreign policy. They want uh, a borderless world. And I would argue they want a kind of uh, dual movement of cultural and economic dere deregulation. The left pushes for deregulation in the bedroom. The right pushes for deregulation in the C-suite, the corporate C-suite. Um, and this worked very well for people who own capital, as well as the professional managerial classes who, uh, uh, do well, who service capital. It didn't work so well for the working and middle classes because of the, just the lack of any stability to life in these types of societies governed by this consensus. So over the past three years, we've seen the, the elite forces use every underhanded procedural mechanism they could use to try to undo the democratic outcome. So that included right away the security apparatus in the United States um, targeting the Trump campaign in what we now know in, included by a one FBI lawyer's own guilty plea an attempt to uh, the, the, the misuse of, uh, uh, of procedure, the abuse of procedure to try to frame the Trump campaign uh, as colluding with Russia, which the theory has utterly collapsed. Um, it included, obviously, across the Atlantic, every underhanded effort to try to prevent Brexit from going through, even though it finally did. Uh, it included, the, in, again, in the United States, the ridiculous Ukraine impeachment push uh, and on and on. And I would argue that the fervid atmosphere that you see in the United States today is just this same old dynamic of elites uh, attempting to uh, prevent a different kind of politics from emerging, except it's on cocaine uh, or some sort of 
post-apocalyptic uh, zombie drug where it involves street violence, which looks really scary. And a lot of conservatives like me might look at it and think, oh, here we go. The Marxists are out in the street. But in fact, I argue and have argued that for all its fury uh, and for all its kind of Marxist-ish rhetoric, this is fundamentally a movement that serves elite interests, right? The Sorry. fact, yeah. If, if I can just draw you to a close, we've got Marxists and cocaine and so we're in on- Right, 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 right. right. So I would just say that, just to very, close very quickly, that for all its fury, all its demands end in things that serve corporate interests, right? So uh, speech codes and manners and so forth, diversity and representation, as opposed to substantive justice on issues like workers' rights, healthcare, and so forth. Okay, that's great. That, that's a great way to kick us off. There's lots of really interesting points in there that I think we can come back to in, in, in the conversation. But if we can move on, and I'll, I'll, I'll go to Wendy next. Uh, so Wendy, you're, just give us a few thoughts to kick us off, please. First, thank you for being here. I'm going to take um, a less global view. But at the outset, I, I just want to point out that Brexit was voted in by a majority of voters in the UK. Donald Trump was voted in by a minority. He lost the popular vote by 3 million votes. Now, I'm not suggesting that he was elected illegitimately. He had a legitimate electoral college win. I am suggesting that uh, it's not quite accurate to say that he was democratically elected by a majority uh, by the will of the people. Um, as far as the FBI spying on one member, one person affiliated with the Trump campaign goes, the FBI spies on lots of people, right and left, all the time. Um, and that's been a problem for years. Now, getting to this election, there are a lot of, of course, a lot of very interesting issues we can discuss. I want to focus on what I think are the two controlling questions, which are who will be allowed to vote and whose vote will be counted. Um, these aren't new questions. The political history of America is in part a political history of suppressing black votes systematically, sometimes murderously for a period of about 100 years after the Civil War. Voter suppression efforts today are much more civilized, but they can still be quite effective. And as you may well know, we're now in a war about Trump's acknowledged effort to cripple the post office. He has openly admitted that he wants to deny the post office essential funding so that it cannot handle the onslaught of mail-in ballots expected during the pandemic. Mail-in voting doesn't work out well for Republicans, he stated. This is really, you know, it's, it, it's not a surprise, but it is shocking that instead of trying to assure us that the government will see that all our votes are counted, the president is telling us that he wants to make sure that all our votes are not counted. Now, there's no time here to talk about all the ways in which the post office being, is being crippled, the amount of mail that's already delayed or lost, um, what can or can't be done about it, and, and the bipartisan backlash to it, because millions of Americans, including Republicans, depend on the mail for essential services. But I, I do want to note that one of the primary messages coming out of the Democratic Convention was devise a plan for voting and devise it now the way you might devise a plan to protect your family during a hurricane that you know is coming. Vote early, make, which is allowed in a lot of states, make October early voting month, 
we haven't heard this before because we haven't had to hear it before. Now, interfering with mail ballots is hardly the only way that you can interfere with an election. Democrats are reasonably confident that they could prevail in a fair election. Virtually nobody expects ones. And so they're, they're gaming out some frightening and, and frighteningly plausible scenarios. Um, the seizure of mail-in ballots if on election day Trump seems to be leading. Um, ways in which Republican legislatures and governors can screw around with Biden's electoral votes. There are a lot of scenarios, very frightening ones. And Trump himself has said, he has openly said that he can only lose an election that is rigged. And in fact, we might have to have a do-over. Now, you know, we're used to hearing outlandish anti-democratic musings from Trump, but these really are remarkable statements. And the effect will be, if, even if Trump somehow loses and has to leave office, that he will have convinced his base that he was the victim of a, crew, of a coup, and so by extension were they. So, you know, here we are. If, if Joe Biden doesn't somehow win a significant and generally unchallenged strong majority on or shortly after Election Day, whoever is sworn in in January is going to be viewed as illegitimate by either a majority or a significant plurality of Americans. Now you combine that with um, a pandemic, economic devastation, and a nation that is right now immersed in fear and loathing and grief. And I fear that we may be in for a prolonged period of unrest, violence, and perhaps even something like martial law. Now, I, I want to get back just in conclusion just for a moment. Final point, to Trump's ad admitted statement that he wants to make sure that our mail-in ballots are not counted, although he wants his mail-in ballot to be counted. In a somewhat functioning, healthy democracy, the president might surreptitiously promote electoral policies that favor his base, but he would never admit to doing so openly. Instead, he would hypocritically uh, pay lip service to democratic ideals. In Trump world, you don't have to do that. In, you know, in Trump world, there's no need for hypocrisy. If we think of hypocrisy as the tribute vice pays to virtue. In Trump world, vice pays no tribute to virtue. And that is a measure of how debased and corrupted and damaged our democracy is. I mean, sometimes I just cry for my country. Okay, thank you. And I think, you know, you've raised a lot of concerns uh, that have been raised elsewhere as well. So I think we should uh, come back to those and, and then try and take them on and, and try and understand a bit more about that. Um, Michael, if I can move to you, please, uh, for your opening thoughts. Yes, thank you. And also thank you to uh, Sorab for offering to found a fan club <laughs> in my honor. Uh, I think you might find that the resulting fan club is rather lame. So I don't know that I would advise that course of action necessarily. Uh, but anyway, yeah, this is a, already an interesting discussion. I think what I could add that might be of use is just to relay a few findings and surmises that have come about as a result of me spending around two months going around the United States to the aftermath of riots. And it should be emphasized that the riots which broke out in late May and early June of this year appear 
to have been the most widespread and severe since at least the 1960s. And I don't know that you'd get a great sense of that given the predominant themes of the coverage of the protest slash riot movement in the early portion of this summer. Uh, but, you know, you can go to Minneapolis, St. Paul, even now, probably. I was there in, in June and July and walk down blocks where entire streets essentially have been reduced to, to rubble, where people feared for their lives. Uh, there was a woman in Chicago whose friend was nearly killed, who I spoke to. And there's a lot to say on that subject, but in terms of how it relates to the 2020 election, I think one thing is potentially instructive, which is that there is a possibility, you can imagine a scenario where a certain kind of Republican emphasizing law and order, emphasizing aversion to criminality, which probably wouldn't be all that controversial, emphasizing the undesirability of riots might stand to benefit politically from what's occurred given the historic magnitude of these events. And yet Trump himself is an emblem of instability and almost chaos in the minds of many people in his own right. So he doesn't serve as really a, a persuasive counterweight in the minds of a healthy share of voters to the unrest and instability that was brought into their communities with such rapidity really uh, earlier this summer. And, and that's, that's notable to me. And that's sort of why I, I, one reason why I took this trip, because I can recall back to 2016 when all anybody could really talk about was the election. I'm overstating that somewhat, but it was, it was really prominent in people's sort of daily consciousness. Whereas this year, the novelty of Trump has worn off predictably. You don't have, Joe Biden isn't as incendiary or inflammatory a figure as Hillary Clinton was in the minds of many voters. And so the election itself has almost been subordinated in importance to issues like obviously the pandemic, and the protest slash unrest. So it, it's almost as if you have to talk about the election by reference to different issues. And I think you see that almost on display at the Democratic Convention, where there's a massive amount of emphasis on the, uh, the Black Lives Matter protests. And yeah, there's some emphasis on the biographical information related to Joe Biden, but people don't really get amped up, so to say, about Joe Biden as such. And so that's why, you know, there's a, there are alternate prisms through which to, to view the sentiments that are operative in the electorate right now and the, the civil unrest being a, a hugely significant one. You know, Donald Trump clearly calculates that he could potentially win Minnesota, uh, where he got almost shockingly close to, to winning in 2016, people may forget. Um, and you know the, the the pandemic, which I think is is you know just so ever present in people's daily lives. Uh, another point that I would make quickly in terms of the the convention, since that was mentioned in the introduction, is that something was never really reckoned with in terms of how Joe Biden, in terms of the meaning of Joe Biden for 
the Democratic Party coalition in terms of his the significance of his victory. Joe Biden, the fact that he won the nomination at all as an old white male was a repudiation. A lot of this elite manufactured ideology in terms of the allegedly outsized significance that identity plays in the uh, voter preferences of ordinary people. Most of that tends to be a fixation on the part of people in the media, people in academia, even people in the corporate world. And so Biden's ascendance, where he won in a historically large field of candidates pretty easily, uh, should have been taken as a rebuttal to that elite manufactured ideology in a way, but it really hasn't been. Instead, you see Biden now at the center of this collective party effort, and all the operatives are immersed in this identity fixated ideology, which was turbo boosted by the protests. And so that's what you see as the dominant theme, really, in these in this convention. And whether that's a natural... Yeah, go ahead. Let me just draw you to a halt there, Michael, yeah. and because I want to come back to some of that stuff, because I think that this whole influence of identity politics and the way it's going to play out in this contest is, is, is a fascinating <laughs> one. But let, let me come back and question you on that. Let, let's go on to Richard first, just get a few thoughts from Richard and then Helen, and then we'll come back and have a bit of a chat amongst the panelists. So Richard, off, off you go. Yeah, thanks very much. I, I wanted to use my time to sort of offer a, something of a, a psychological analysis of where we are compared to four years ago. Uh, I think the, the DNC convention ongoing at the moment really epitomizes the Democrats' difficult balancing act. On the one hand, they have a party activist base, which holds views which are not shared by the majority of Americans on issues ranging from immigration, levels of environmental regulation, the Green New Deal and so on, uh, certain matters of gender and sexual politics, and certain matters of police reform. And I think Joe Biden knows this. Um, I think he knows that these activists don't speak to the majority of the country or even indeed to the majority of the Democratic Party as was evidenced by his own victory uh, in the primary, but he knows that they are vocal uh, and uh, potentially an important electorate in the sense that they need to turn out. Um, they're not enough, they're not uh, sufficient to victory, but they are necessary. Uh, to victory. But I think Biden has decided that it's much more important to spend his time focused on a, a subsection of the electorate which will have a disproportionate influence in the outcome because of where they are uh, geographically. Um, and that's working class, uh, older white voters without college degrees, um, and also suburban, more middle class uh, women, uh, white women. Um, and these are groups which both voted for Donald Trump in 2016, but if they switch to Biden uh, in non-trivial numbers, then that in itself would be enough to help Biden secure victory. And I think that there are lots of, um, there's lots of evidence in the DNC this <clears throat> week where the Biden campaign has clearly placed individuals like John Kasich or uh, even Bill Clinton to try to speak to those electorates. And even even when you have figures of the sort of left of the party like Bernie Sanders, it's interesting that the issues that Sanders talked about were the kind of old fashioned bread and butter social democratic issues of 
uh, childcare, minimum wage, uh, union rights, and so on. And I think Joe Biden has also perhaps in, inadvertently sometimes helped by his own um, gaffes that he is, um, when he has made mistakes, faux pas, uh, on some of these uh, issues of uh, identity, uh, it's helped to actually separate him in voters' minds uh, from those issues. So looking at where we are now, Biden is in a reasonably good position uh, to win, uh, but it's not fully locked on. I think that Trump, for the first time in his presidency, has really botched the politics of the moment. He's an incredibly politically savvy individual, and I think that there are all sorts of crises throughout his presidency, not least the impeachment crisis, which he has managed to, um, to, to dodge that bullet. But I think when it's come to the coronavirus issue, he was incoherent at the start in the messaging on it. Um, and I think that it's made, it's made it harder for Trump to seize this moment and put the Democrats um, on the back foot. I think the other issue that Trump faces is, is that he's failed to adequately define Joe Biden um, in a way that he did so brilliantly with Hillary Clinton and the crooked Hillary line or um, his 2016 Republican opponents uh, in the primary, low energy Jeb, little Marco, lying Ted and so on. Sleepy Joe doesn't quite get there for Trump. He needs voters to fear Joe Biden, voters who think Trump's not done a great job but think that Biden is a threat to their way of life. And I don't think he's done that yet. Now, I suspect that that's the pivot that his campaign is making now and is going to try to do uh, in the next few months to make Biden sort of the Trojan horse, Trojan Joe, or, or, or however he wants to put it. Um, and and that, that, that may pay off, but it's going to be a, a, a steep climb. Um, he's in a weaker position now than he was um, Biden's unfavorable ratings is are sort of net minus five, whereas for Hillary Clinton, her unfavorable ratings were more like uh, net minus 17, net minus 20. So he needs to kind of treble the net uh, negative rating that um, Biden has in the electorate. And so that's going to be uh, uh, his task. But even if Biden wins, and I'll just finish on this, even if Biden wins, uh, I think people will, you know, it's, Trump is not going away. He's going to remain a major force in American politics, the most significant figure in the American conservative movement for some time. And so I think that there could be potentially a complacency, even those who think that Biden will win, that in defeating Trump in November, Trump goes away. If Trump leaves the White House, he's still going to be a delible aspect of American politics for quite some time to come. Okay, thanks. Thanks very much, Richard. That was very useful. Um, Helen, let's, let's come to you and get your thoughts now. Um, so I think that this is an interesting time to be having this discussion because if you look at the polls, um, they are about where the polls were this time in 2016 when Hillary was leading the polls and the chance of a um, going into the election, the chance of a Trump uh, a victory was on the smart polls was, you know, he had about a 28 to 72% chance of winning and we're at about the same stage now. So there's still quite a strong possibility that Trump could win. Um, but again, we're sort of facing a Democrat kind of lead as we go into the uh, election. So 
you could say, well, things haven't really changed very much since uh, 2016, but I think there have been some changes which are quite important to note. And I would argue that some of the most important uh, changes have been how the Democrats are trying to define themselves and trying to um, form their, their, their voter base in order to win this election. I think that if you look at Trump, He's just really consolidated what he started in 2016. He has maintained his populist approach. It's done very well for him. His supporters, whenever my reporters go out anywhere, they still find huge uh, support for Trump. His, his voters are very excited about him. He has a, uh, a tremendous enthusiasm behind him uh, amongst the people who vote for him. And he's been very effective amongst his own supporters at sort of um, you know, ridiculing, silencing, dismissing as fake news, uh, any kind of opposition to him. And I think he's kind of set a course and he's kind of uh, really stayed on that course fairly systematically. I think the Democrats, on the other hand, have gone through a bit more of a uncertain transformation. I think after the election, they were uh, very much um, in denial um, and they weren't sure who to blame. They weren't sure if it was their kind of uh, identity politics. They went through a great kind of fear that identity politics didn't really work and they had to be more, um, uh, embrace a more kind of populist, leftist kind of uh, um, outlook. Uh, there was all those books, um, uh, you know, written about how the flyover states and how the uh, um, Democrats ignored those places. And I think there was a sort of soul searching within the um, Democrat Party. And I don't think it's kind of reached a, a conclusion yet. And I think at, at, in the beginning, they kind of rode a populist reaction. They kind of gave, um, you know, people in the beginning of the um, primary period, like Sanders and uh, Warren, they did quite well. But I think there was a fairly decisive decision that that was not the way that the party could go. And when people say that Biden won the nomination, I mean, he won the nomination basically by uh, coming in and crushing everybody else. It was such a wide field. Uh, Bernie's support was sort of spread between lots of different candidates. And by the, in the end, I think the establishment in the uh, kind of Democrat Party came in and basically said, Biden's our man, we have to have him. And I think that that kind of left the Dems in a, in a bit of a state because they didn't then really have a natural identity um, to... Uh, build on for the election. So I think in January, February, it was still pretty certain that Trump was on his way to win this election with absolutely no problem at all. I think what has really helped them has been the um, embracing of the, first of all, the race issue, the Black Lives Matter movement. I think that has had a fairly transformative impact on the um, uh, Democrats kind of vision of themselves. It's given them a sense of purpose. Um, I think it, it didn't, it was nothing to do with them how it emerged. I think it emerged because of the kind of collapse of elite consensus, which um, other people have talked about. And I think it was led by kids and by, um, you know, all sorts of various groups, but it took hold of the, in, in terms of the sort of woke culture that is the Dems uh, natural audience. And it gave them a sense of purpose. And I think the fact that so rapidly um, there was a kind of corporate America came in behind Black Lives Matter that people were very shocked. But now they feel like they've got a, 
a way that they can kind of string together a broader area of support. And I think that's quite interesting. I think that um, in, in, in doing that, it's important to understand that Biden actually is the perfect leader for this movement. It's not that he's kind of, um, the fact that he's a bumbling idiot in his basement is actually quite helpful because what he, and, and there's a total enthusiasm gap. I mean, it's not like, any, I don't know anybody who's like, oh, Joe Biden, I really want him to be president. What he's got is he's, he's basically um, uh, devoid of any real policy, devoid of any kind of politics, but they've created this person, quite unlike Hillary, who I think they, they want to be sort of more like a figurehead rather than a political leader. And I think that's really what he represents. He's like a figurehead that can sort of be at the head of a anti-Trump vote without really being very clear what they're defining, what they're about. And so I think that as, you've, as the years gone on, you've seen that increasingly um, the, the Democrats have kind of begun to change their tune a bit. And I think they've learned quite a bit from the Trump playbook. I think he, um, when Trump got a lot of his ideas originally from the, from the left, so it's a kind of interesting kind of flip-flop. You know, Trump has all, had always uh, termed his support in terms of uh, make America great again, the liberals are crushing uh, the true America, and he turned it, uh, the whole of the 2016 election, I think, into an existential crisis for white America. You know, we were being overwhelmed by immigrants, we were being overwhelmed by liberal politically correct ideas, and actually, you know, if we're going to stay who we are, if we're going to defend our identity, then, you know, this is a, a, a existential crisis, and all old ways of doing things are out the book. I think now you can see that the left, and, and, incre and incredibly this week in the uh, Democrat convention, I think the left are kind of trying to adopt the same kind of terms. They look at everything in much more cataclysmic uh, uh, terms. They've done that obviously for ages in terms of climate change, but I think that the, um, you can see that the whole Black Lives Matter, you know, I can't breathe, all of that became a, a very kind of existential sort of uh, discussion about how for our lives, you know, we have to change society if we're going to, uh, you know, our lives depend upon it. And, and now you can see that every, point, yeah, every issue I think now is seen in those kind of cataclysmic terms, you, whether it's the post office, I don't actually agree with what Wendy said about the post office, I think there's, Trump made a tweet, um, uh, the left reacted. The reality is the post office is fine and it's not going to be that different. And you can see that both terms now, when you then add the COVID panic on top of this, it's created this real sense of crisis. We have Obama saying that we're in a constitutional crisis, that um, you know everything that we value is now under threat. This is no normal times. And the sense of how everything has been kind of pushed to this sort of extreme terms, I think is what creates this sense that there's such a crisis within America. I think it's a highly politicized crisis rather than um, um, uh, the real crisis on the ground. And I can explain that a bit more in the discussion. Okay, thanks. Thanks very much, Helen. We can come back to that. And that question of, of um, whether being anti-Trump is enough and the absence of any sort of substance is, I think, one that we can, we can come to as well. Um, I want to come out to the audience as quickly as possible, but I, do, I do just want to come back to each of you with just a very quick question and uh, uh, hopefully a quick answer from you. So let me uh, come to you, Saurabh, first. Um, 
you you talked about uh, the politics of the common good, which I think was is 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 a striking thing uh, to say at a time when so many people associate uh, the Republicans and Trump, especially obviously these days, with anything but the common good, as 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 being such an extreme figure of division. So I wondered if you could uh, kind of explain uh, that a bit more and and just. Um, I, I suppose you know. They, obviously, this this week there's it's, there's been a, a conspiracy theorist that's won one of the the primaries. There's been uh, hit the yet again the, the kind of questioning of a quite chaotic response to the pandemic. There's, all, I mean, he's saying that the economy can bounce back, but I think there's a lot of skeptics, uh, a lot of people skeptical about that. So, kind of, what is the the case that they can make for the common good in this kind of rather chaotic situation that Helen's outlined? there. Yeah, so I'll uh, put my cards on the table as I'm a, a Catholic critic of American conservatism. In other words, I'm a man of the right who would like to see a different kind of conservatism um, that is uh, not just about maximizing individual liberty, which has been, um, I would argue, the dominant theme of left and right in this country for, for a very long time, for two generations at least. Um, it's just that the left emphasizes one sphere of liberty, the kind of social and cultural and sexual, and the right emphasizes the other one, uh, the economic. Um, and so you have a politics in which you cannot answer what is the point of our politics. Um, everything is filtered through questions about um, rights talk and procedural questions, but no straightforward answers to is the is the is our political system working for the vast majority of people now trump came in and sensed that this was a weakness in our elites that the elite consensus was not helping uh the broad masses and a lot of people were left behind by that model of politics it worked again it worked well for people in my social class but not for 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 workers and middle classes and he sensed that and in a very, in, again, in inchoate, messy way, because he's not a political theorist, but he sensed it. And he's like, wait, why are we, why are the Chinese building our infrastructure? Why, why, are, the, why are the Chinese in charge of our security sensitive infrastructure? So he framed issues of the common good in terms of national greatness. And he just sort of exposed the folly of the elites who for, for since the end of the Cold War, at least, had been building a system that, again, worked very well for them, but not for um, uh, the, the average welder, the average uh, automaker, and so forth. Now, behind Trump is an ferment of other conservatives who are much more sophisticated about articulating this critique. You know, Senator Marco Rubio increasingly referring to Leonine teaching of Pope Leo XIII's teaching on, on social justice. You have uh, someone like Senator Josh Hawley of Missouri, who's willing to take on big tech and pointing out that the economic liberty of, uh, of big tech has paradoxically led to censorship on the internet. So we have to do something about that. And the, and, and the right is increasingly seeing itself in some ways as the, as the party of the state, which is a very European term and unusual for Americans. But we see that uh, you know, the corporations, and the kind of liberal elite have every other institution. What we have is the state. So that movement will, I think, will develop whether or not Trump wins. But I would just close on this note that I do think that, um, you know, that Trump's uh, 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 eulogies are being uh, haste, too hastily 
written. And mm -hmm. I would be surprised if, if, if the polls currently, even the tightening polls really reflect what's happening in the country and I think the outrage of that middle whom Trump explicitly serves. Sure, I think that's a really important point and, and kind of what we're getting at the underlying trends just now I think is particularly important in, in, in this. Wendy, if I can come to you, um, you talked about the, the, the kind of chaos of the public sphere in, in, in your introduction, but I wondered if I could get you to reflect for a minute on the Democrats and the situation that they're in and just this, um, is there substance to democratic politics just now is is kind of the question on, on my lips, I think, because I've watched some of the convention over the last uh, few days. And um, while, you know, the, the strident personal attacks on Trump have been all to the fore, uh, there, there does seem to have been um, quite a concerted effort to play down the divisions or what seem to be the divisions within the, the Democratic Party. And I just, there doesn't seem to be very much politics as far as I can see in terms of political. I think you've been watching a different convention than the one I've been watching. Okay, so uh, that's what, well, that's why I'm after that. Tell me what, tell me what there is. And I've been talking to, and I know quite a lot of them. Um, I think Democrats have a, uh, a reasonably clear agenda. One is to expand the Affordable Care Act. Republicans want to repeal it and they haven't yet had a, um, a plan to replace it with. The other is to expand childcare, to deal with student debt, to do an infrastructure plan, um, and to deal with racial justice issues, to um, have a much different immigration policy, though I don't really know any um, serious Democrats in serious power who favor open borders. So, you know, there's a, there's a long policy list that I don't think we really have time to go through right now. But um, I heard and saw quite a lot of it being presented in the convention. I, I think what your impression may have come from is the fact that people weren't talking about these policy issues so much as trying to show what they consider the human effects of them. So we saw videos with immigrants. We saw people talking about healthcare problems. Um, we saw people talking about childcare. You know, we saw people talking about the range of issues that are affecting them and that Democrats say they have plans to do something about that. And, and for the most part, the Democratic voting base knows what those policies are, knows what their plans are. As to your point that the Democrats seem to, be want, to, seem to want to paper over their differences, well, that's what political parties do. They, they try to unite their voters. They try to give a little something to everybody. That's what parties do. Um, I, I want to make just a couple of more points, if I may. One about um, uh, Helen's point about the post office. I, you know, I, I just want to say, that um, sorting machines have been destroyed, mailboxes have been removed. I haven't received a ballot that I requested weeks ago. I'm 70 years old, I don't wanna vote in person in the primary, but I'm going to have to because I haven't received my ballot. There's not gonna be time to turn it in. That's happening to a lot of people. And I wanna make one more point about Trump. I think it's misleading to talk about him as a conservative, as a populist, as a man of the right, or a man of the left. I think he is none of those things. I think he is non-ideological. I think he is a man of self-interest. And I think that his administration has not served the non-elites, the working people. It has served the elites. The stock market's doing well. The elites haven't been nearly as hurt by his mismanagement or non-management of the pandemic. The people who are 
dying and becoming disabled are poor people, lower income people, working in service industries, Hispanics and black people. He has not helped working people. He has helped the elites, of which he is one. Okay. Let me come to uh, uh, Michael, and I think Richard as well, actually, because uh, in terms of um, you've both been looking in different ways, Michael, because you've been uh, going around some of the important cities just now and sites of disorder, such as Portland, and Richard, because you've been uh, writing a book recently on, 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 on kind of racial politics and democracy. But I just wondered from both of you how these uh, divisions within the, the Democratic Party uh, play out because on the one hand you 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 we've seen Biden and uh, Kamala both uh, gain the nominations and they're both uh, uh, you know renowned for their their law and order approach and their their hard approach and yet on the other hand they seem keen to soften that approach to the extent Michael you were talking about in a column in the Washington Post today about the way that uh, Kamala has played down um, a lot of the uh, uh, divisions that are going on within Portland. So how does that, that, that seems like just such a core contradiction at the heart of the party. How, how, how do you think that plays out and what impact does it have? Yeah, so the, the column today was actually in the Wall Street Journal if people are interested in, in looking it up. But the, the core observation there was born of my being in Portland for over a week. I, going to these protests every night back when they were at a bit of a crescendo in late July as a result of the federal forces being uh, deployed there, which caused a great deal of agitation in Portland, which has sort of a unique culture of perpetual protest. So they didn't really need a reason to be protesting, but Trump, in a sense, gave them one. But, you know, you go to Portland and you're there at midnight or so, and you have black clad very avowed anarchists, almost foot soldiers, meaning, and I don't say that hyperbolically, meaning they're in full armor with shields with the anarchist A emblazoned on the shields. I mean, they're not bashful about stating what their ideological predilections are. So they're the driving force in terms of the operations uh, each night in the, in, in the protests there in Portland, or at least were when I was there. And yet they've seized the mantle of Black Lives Matter, which is unimpeachable in the minds of democratic elites. So to cast doubt on the ideological ambitions of these largely white anarchists would be seen to them as undermining the moral legitimacy of Black Lives Matter, which is a total non-starter. Sort of gets to the interesting racial and demographic dynamics of this protest movement, which has been in a way driven by whites. Yes, there are blacks in particular areas, but you go to some of these protests and they're almost universally white. In fact, there I was at some where the police force, which had been dispatched to monitor the protests, were more racially diverse than the protesters themselves, which is sort of a amusing irony that doesn't really get emphasized because it, you know, it's a little bit awkward. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, I think you see that tension manifesting in a way in the Democratic Convention and in the person of Kamala Harris in particular, who went around for the majority of her career proclaiming proudly that she was the top cop of the largest state in the union. And yet she can, you know, make common cause with protesters in Portland 
whose explicit goal is the total abolition of the American criminal justice apparatus. I mean, I'm not making that up. This is what they say. Um, and you know, because of the odd coalitional dynamics at work within the Democratic Party, somehow Kamala Harris, who was a hardline prosecutor in one iteration of her political self, now is almost channeling the sentiments of a rather radical movement, which because it's positioned against Trump, ended up being embraced by what you might call normie Dems in the modern nomenclature, meaning just mainstream establishment Democrats who think they're in favor of Black Lives Matter and see that this is one prong of that movement, therefore have you know, brought it into the fold. And they do so without really examining any of the underlying premises of what they're advocating, which makes sense because much of the media in the United States, I'm sorry to say, is deeply emotionally and politically invested in this protest movement, meaning they're invested in its moral sanctity being preserved. So to highlight any of its less savory aspects would be an unpardonable offense to them. And you see that trickling up into how it's discussed in the upper echelons of the Democratic Party with, with Kamala Harris, for example, you know, waving the banner of the Portland protesters who don't even think that she should exist as a representative of the depredations of the American carceral state. Okay, R Richard, wh where do you stand on this then? How, how, how do you view it? Because you're standing slightly outside of the immediacy of, of uh, American cities dissolving into chaos and looking at it from a bit of a more academic perspective. But how do you see this playing out? I think there's a major policy schism in the Democratic Party, and that's been papered over to some extent by the Trump presidency. I think Trump has this phenomenon for political science, you know, this negative partisanship that exists, has held the Democrats together, and is, in, I think, is largely holding them together uh, in this election, with some exceptions on 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 the fringes um, of the party, but. We should be no doubt the Democratic Party is changing um, and that a new generation of Democrats, Democratic elected officials now, not just activists, but Democratic elected officials are coming to the fore and they will be increasingly vocal, perhaps not so much in this election, but whatever happens after this election. So we've seen, if you look at the primaries, don't just focus on what happened in the presidential primaries, look at what happened in the congressional primaries in different parts of the country where um, candidates sometimes called the Justice Democrats, figures of the sort of left, identitarian left of the party, have unseated long-standing representatives in Missouri and New York and Illinois and so on. Um, and these figures are going to cause a lot of trouble for Biden if he is elected president. Um, and if Trump is elected president, I think will become the uh, the leaders of the of the Democratic Party uh, moving forward. I think for now the lid is being kept on that. Um, I think that neither Harris nor Biden are natural bedfellows of the kind of Justice Democrats uh, wing of the party. Um, they particularly have a lot of issues with with Biden and his past record on. Uh, the Clinton crime bill, which he was a co-sponsor of, going back even further, his um, uh, uh, opposition to uh, uh, busing to integrate schools in the 1970s. So 
there, there's a lot of um, distrust, I suppose, in some sense, but I think the figure of Trump is such a powerful one that they're, they're, they're holding things um, together. And I suppose, as I sort of said in my remarks earlier, I think Trump's challenge is to expose that fissure and to widen it and to make that uh, the, a, a major element of the election uh, going forward. Um, I think if he can, if he can do that, um, then I think that he could find the extra only four or five percentage points that he needs to make this a much more competitive election uh, than it is even now. Okay, um, so a reminder to everyone, uh, the raise hand button is how you come in and ask a question and I'm just going to come to Helen very quickly and then uh, we'll be out to get all your thoughts and questions and points. But Helen, if I can just come to you, because uh, you, you rejected the, the postal service thing, but I just wonder in terms of the way that the public sphere is operating in America just now with the, the impact of the pandemic, I mean, it is inevitably uh, fragmented and atomized uh, uh, to, to, to quite a large extent. I, I just wonder what impact do you think that will have on the, on the, on the next three weeks? I mean, uh, obviously already we've got uh, the Democrats conducting a convention by, uh, you know, online. Uh, Trump will no doubt try and get out and about, but his, his capacity to do that is limited and it deprives him to a certain extent of his, his ability to hold rallies and to make an impact that way. But just more broadly as well, um, just the, the, the isolation and the disfigurement of public debate that that has, I just wonder uh, to what extent is that a problem and how, that, how might that impact? I think the pandemic has made a big political impact and I think it's also been politicized which I think are two different things. Um, I think the political impact is that it has created because of the way it's been handled really on both sides it's created amongst many people a sense that everything's out of control nobody is in control there's no one in charge and I think because it's been politicized that it's almost like created two world views of what's going on in America, which I think both views are wrong, but you know, sitting in your bedroom, watching your particular channel, you think it's right. So I think on the left, you have this kind of crazy sense that you know, the people swimming in the uh, pools of the Ozark or you know, on the beach in Florida are about to kind of all self-destruct because they're spreading the pandemic and there's this complete sense that we are all about to die um, because of the the pandemic and that anybody who thinks it's you can walk outside without a mask is you know basically a fascist that's one kind of view and i think that, that that's a view that the left has and it's wrong and i think that there's a view that the right have that that i mean actually a I, I think that when we've gone, when my organization has gone and done reporting in Portland, it isn't quite the way it's being reported. It's not this sort of inner, ci inner city chaos um, that, um, uh, you know, is being described. It's, 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 it's a kind of, it's more an expression of the anxiety, I think, that is happening, that, that people feel, you know, all over the place, that people are kind of don't quite know what to do. We, we went on a shoot recently and some kid came and waved a machete at one of my reporters, but it was more a, just a sense of everybody feeling very anxious, everybody feeling distrustful, um, not a sense of kind of inner city collapse in the way that I think some right-wing commentators have, have, have described. And so I feel that what's happened with the pandemic, sorry, my phone's ringing, 
what's happened with the pandemic is that uh, it's it's kind of exaggerated the, the problems between the two parties. And I think, you know, then when something like the post office comes up, where Trump says, the post office is useless, we can't trust uh, voting, and then there's a knee-jerk reaction on the left to say the post office is the savior of humanity, and we all have to go out and defend the post office, and Obama says a very, you know, uh, you know, democracy is on the line. It all becomes so politicized in a way that is just unnecessary, but, you know, unavoidable in many ways. Okay, that's very useful. Um, so I'm going to come out to the audience now. So anybody that would like to speak, find the participants panel, raise your hand, and I'll, I'll take you uh, in turn. So we've got a couple so far, so I'm just going to uh, take them as, as they come up. So Hal, um, do you want to uh, make a point or ask a question or, or, or whatever? Yeah, no, uh, that's, that's, no, I was actually going to ask a question, Michael in particular, because uh, this election, really what we see is there's almost these two swing blocks, and this is coming from uh, this is coming from somebody who's in Pennsylvania and in the suburbs. We have, uh, we have this kind of suburban block, which both candidates have been trying to address. So Trump's been tweeting all this weird stuff about like saving the suburbs. And we've also seen, uh, and of course, uh, I think Kamala Harris's kind of desire to play to that crowd as well. But we also saw in 2016, it was really that working class swing vote uh, towards Trump away from the Democrats historically. So I guess the question is like, in what way does playing to which side of this uh, help either candidate and because these are kind of the two blocks, how will that really affect the way political, the policies are presented and the way that uh, agendas are prioritized? Because it seems like Biden's platform there seems to be a large part of that that kind of is devoted towards trying to regain industrial votes just even superficially with this like buy America stuff. But we also see this real hard pitch to the suburbs by both candidates also. Okay, thanks, uh, Hal. Uh, just hold thought, Michael. Uh, I'm going to take a group of questions uh, just now and we'll come back and get thoughts from all the panel. So Richard, um, you thanks, please. Alex. Yeah, thanks. Um, I'm going to ask hopefully a couple of big dumb questions just for clarification because um, I just would like to know more about the situation approaching it from the slight uh, position of sadly ignorance. Um, first of all, isn't, isn't this idea that um, you know it's all the white, um, poor white working class from middle America uh, that voted for Trump uh, and, and that, that, that narrative about that, isn't that itself a racist narrative? I mean, hasn't that, isn't that something that's been tried, that they've tried to establish um, the Democrats as it were? Uh, to sort of suggest that it is these sort of back uh, uh, redneck uh, uh, white workers that, uh, that voted for Trump. And in fact, it's, it's, it's more complicated than that, surely, isn't it? I mean, uh, I understand as far as I, uh, uh, as far as I get it, that the demographics are such that there's a large, what, um, what's known as Hispanic um, population. And, and, and unless I'm wrong about this, I'm happy to be wrong. Uh, they also uh, voted for Trump because it's, even though this narrative about the um, yeah, keeping out the Mexicans, building the wall and so on and so forth. That's something which I think cuts across uh, what you might describe or what might be loosely described as racial lines. And that, that, that's a thing to do with people who, who feel they want to belong somewhere, belong in a country which is theirs, uh, as opposed to a country which just throws open uh, its borders and, and, and lets the, its poor huddled masses uh, pour in. So I'm just curious as to whether or not that's the case. And also I just wanted to understand if... Um, if the Hillary Clinton factor is still in any way uh, uh, important insofar as what she said about the, um, uh, not the unapproachables, the, um, whatever they call it, you, you'll remind me, I'm sure, uh, whether or not, the un, not the undesirable, anyway, um, uh, whether or not that still counts insofar as that, that insult from the democratic side, uh, whether that, uh, that still factors. And the last thing I was just gonna uh, query is, 
it's with regards to the sort of way that Trump has been. I think Wendy said about this, Trump being very upfront about the fact that he's not going to accept the result of the elections. Um, aren't the Democrats already building up to that? Um, aren't we already getting into a mode where if Trump wins again, that, that there's going to be another four years of saying that was illegitimate? Okay, thanks, uh, uh, Richard. That was very useful. Jenny, I'm going to come to you now. Um, just two questions. Um, the first is really on the economy. I mean, the economy looks pretty bad. And I'm just wondering how Trump is actually dealing with this. But also what the Democrats are, are, are saying about the economy and how America is going to get out of you know, the sort of po well, post-COVID slump uh, recession. Um, you know, what sort of economic policies, if any, they're, they're putting forward? So that's the one question. The other question is that I've, I've read several people saying that um, a lot of Americans um, have actually been quite intimidated by not just the sort of cancel culture and work culture, but particularly by the Black Lives Matter protests and the violence that has attracted to, you know, it has attracted in the sense that they are feeling intimidated and are not actually articulating what they think about these things honestly. And in particular, whether actually there is more support for Trump than would appear to be the case in the polls. Thanks. Thanks, Jenny. I think that's a good question. Um, I'm going to come to uh, my co-host, Ella Whelan, uh, now, and then I'm going to come to Kevin. Then I'll come back to the panel and get just a brief thought from you on, on one of those questions, and then it'll be back out, and I'll start with Rob when I come back out. So, Ella. Uh, thank, thank you, Alistair, and thanks for fascinating debate so far. I wanted to ask um, the panel how much they thought there's kind of a, there's a certain amount of commentary at the moment about how whether or not this is the same as whether we're running rerunning 2016 you know in terms of there's some predictions in the polls that show that it's at a similar point um but more importantly whether the democrats have sort of learned their lesson and a very striking example where i think they haven't learned their lesson is watching the democratic convention and watching michelle obama's speech it was quite remarkable how um she really pitched uh, her bid for Biden as sort of almost apolitical. Um, so she's set, she's got this shtick, even though she's a fantastically successful woman in her own right and has written a book telling us all about how she's so fantastically successful um, and knows a lot about politics. She has this shtick where she talks about the fact that she sort of, she doesn't like politics and she says, you know me. Um, but she really pitches her bid for Biden in this kind of anti-political way. You know, he's, uh, he's a man who's lost children. He's someone who's, you know, really caring. Um, I lost count of the amount of times she mentioned kids in the speech, but it's but it's all around the idea of Trump is nasty and mean spirited and a and a bully. And Biden is Biden is your man um, to save the day, and you know he'd have a cup of tea with you. And that's just that's just exactly what Clinton tried to do. And it's I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't it a central part of why the Democrats lost last time? It's this kind of almost anti-political. Um, bid and the most frustrating thing is that there's so much I mean I think Wendy's right in terms of there is so much about Trump 
that is so meaty that you can get into, not least his whole handling of the pandemic. I mean, healthcare surely is a huge issue uh, at the moment, something that you could really clean up on. And the Democrats, I mean, ha uh, Kamala Harris and Biden are both sort of pretty piss poor when it comes to um, that. They're not very ambitious. So how much is this a rerun of 2016? And is it kind of history repeating itself? What's that phrase? You know, twice as fast. I mean, what's going on there? That's my question. Okay, thanks, Ella. I'm going to come to Kevin now. So, Kevin, off you go. Yeah, I've just got a question that's not really reflecting the election, but is about uh, Trump's foreign policy, because I, I find it kind of interesting in the sense that he, he began with that sort of principled realism. And what I can't tell, and what I'd love to hear from the panel, is whether there's some sort of thread that actually runs through Trump's foreign policy um, like, uh, you know, he talked about migration, he talked about uh, NATO and trade, uh, and what I know about it, and I wonder whether this is also reflective of, of Trump more broadly, is that despite the fact of appearing to have no s sort of thread running through it, that actually uh, it, it was disruptive and probably in a slightly better way than, than for instance, Obama continuing on the status quo. So I just wondered, is there some sort of coherence or is the only good thing that Trump has done uh, in a political sense is be this, this great disruptive force and um, will the world be a better place for it? Okay, thanks, Kevin. So panel, I'm gonna come back to you now and um, given the first question was directed at Michael, Michael, shall I come to you first? And then I'll just, so don't feel the need to pick up on all of these questions, just pick one thing. Um, or two things at the very most, but just some quick responses so that we can come back out to the panel, uh, to the audience again uh, quite quickly. So, Michael, off you go. Yeah, I thought the question that Hal posed was pretty incisive and got to something that I had wanted to mention anyway, which is the dichotomy between the argument presented by Trump in 2016 versus Hillary Clinton and the argument that he's now presenting in fits and starts against Joe Biden. One reason why I think the argument against Hillary Clinton was effective in crucial geographic areas, so these areas that have been sort of classically termed now as Obama to Trump counties, where you have a large amount of so-called white working class voters, downscale whites was a term that was popularized in 2016. And there were many of those counties. For example, there was a congressional district in Maine that Trump one, which earned him an electoral vote in 2016 because of the shifting tide in the preferences of these sorts of voters. And one reason I think that, that argument, the argument he made in 2016 was salient was because he cast Hillary with some legitimacy, with a lot of legitimacy actually, as an emblem of a failed political establishment. Trump had just deposed the reigning dynasty of the Republican Party, the Bushes, and then was going after the dynasty of the Democratic Party, the, the Clintons, and he was something novel and fresh. He was saying that essentially the ruling classes of both parties have colluded, to use a popular term now, against the, the working stiff. And uh, that, that argument resonated, partially probably having to do with Hillary's own personal traits that maybe voters in those particular geographic areas didn't find that's compelling. 
But now I think you have Trump reverting back to a style of argument with Biden that really could have been made by any Republican candidate. He's emphasizing how Biden is the Trojan horse for the radical left and that, you know, Kamala Harris is this kind of wild-eyed radical in her own right. And whatever the validity of that argument, it doesn't speak to Trump's own uniqueness, which uh, which caused him to win the stunning victory in 2016. That was, I think, largely a product of his own heterodoxies, where he didn't necessarily abide by longstanding Republican nostrums in terms of free trade, uh, in terms of you know political correctness, in terms of uh, foreign policy, and, and and so that's why I think maybe. The, the version of Trump that we're seeing now in 2020 is a little more stale uh, than it was in, in, in 2016, which maybe isn't the greatest omen for his prospects. Not to say nothing of the fact that his, one of his architects in 2016 of his campaign strategy was just arrested today, Steve Bannon, on unrelated <laughs> charges. Um, and then in terms of foreign policy, to touch on that briefly, um, it's very brief, I, yeah, it's very brief. I, th I think that there isn't really a coherent doctrine in terms of the level of disruption that Trump is perceived to pose to the established order or the status quo in the foreign policy domain, it's a communications disruption. Like he doesn't traffic in the kinds of diplomatic niceties generally that make people roll their eyes. But at the same time, that's sort of layered over a foreign policy slash diplomatic approach that really is more or less a perpetuation of the status quo. Like for all his uh, wailing about how NATO is ripping us off, he managed to broker a deal in 2018 that enabled NATO to secure more funding from, from member states, which is exactly what Obama had pursued. But again, framed in a much different rhetorical style. So I think a lot of the issue with Trump in terms of how the political class looks at the so-called threat he poses, it's based on his admittedly exaggerated and, and, and legitimately existent uh, communications or rhetorical style, which bucked every trend that preceded him. But in terms of the actual policy portfolio, it, you know, there's some tinkering around the margins, but it's largely what you would expect from a conventional, I think, Republican administration, although it should be said that he hasn't started a new war yet. Uh, which is a stark departure for many of his predecessors. And that is definitely worth noting, although, you know, you know he hasn't withdrawn from Afghanistan as he had said he wanted to do. So it's, it's sort of a mixed bag, but I think distilling it into a coherent doctrine is a little bit dicey. Okay, so I'm going to come to Helen and then Richard and then Wendy and then Sorab just to get very, very quick comments on anything that you want to pick up from those questions because I want to come out and get another round of uh, questions in before we give you time to sum up. So Helen, any quick thoughts on anything you've heard? Uh, on the economy, I think that's the thing to watch. I think that Trump uh, still has a uh, broad support in terms of his economic support. And I think that there are kind of Republicans who vote for him holding their noses on the economic issues. Um, and I think that what happens with the economy is very important. Right up until now, a lot of things have been muted because of uh, government aid and uh, uh, programs, which have all just come to an end. And so I think that's something to watch uh, and to see to what extent the inability to open the economy up 
he gets blamed for that or the Dems get blamed for it. I think it's an open question. Um, I think in terms of what's different this time, I mean, just to throw out a few things, I think there are fewer swing voters. I think this notion that there's these middle voters that are kind of, you know, weighing up and choosing. I just think that all the issues show that those people that used to exist in the middle, whether it's abortion or anything, they're just not, there's, it's kind of like that now, not like that. So I think that there are fewer swing voters. Um, and so it's much more about getting your vote out. And that's what this election's about. I think if you look at old people, maybe the pandemic's had an impact. I think old people are swinging towards Biden. Maybe they empathize with his age. I don't know. But there's definitely a old person vote going to him. And I think that the, I mean, all the pundits say it's suburban women. That's where it happens. I don't think Biden's going to get many non-college white male voters, which were the key people that um, Trump got. I think it's all about suburban women, which is why they're all going on about women. Okay, thanks. Richard, uh, anything that you want to pick up on quickly? Yeah, thanks. So just, just a couple of things. So first was um, on, on Richard's point uh, about Hispanic voters. So um, Trump did not win a majority of Hispanic voters. He got 29% of the Latino vote. Um, but that was an improvement, actually, from uh, Mitt Romney's performance among Latino voters. And there was a major miscalculation by the Clinton campaign that assumed that Trump's very harsh uh, anti-immigration rhetoric would uh, mean that Trump would do even worse than Romney did among uh, Hispanic voters. I think one of the major uh, miscalculations is, of course, that uh, Latino voters are American citizens uh, by definition. So they're going to have potentially um, different attitudes from um, uh, undocumented uh, people in the United States, for example, who just who don't vote. And it always puzzled me that the Clinton campaign seemed to assume that um, people who had arrived in America and not been given legal status uh, might would have the same politics as people who potentially were born in America and their parents and grandparents were born in America. So there's um, much more nuance to that electorate. It's also an electorate that has mixed views on, say, the uh, Black Lives Matter movement. And there are lots of generational differences within the Latino community. The, the second point I just wanted to pick up on was about um, this notion of this kind of, uh, Ella's point about this kind of a political focus on the personalities um, is this just sort of a mistake uh, being run of 2016 again? And I think um, you know Joe Biden is is a very different person than Hillary Clinton, and he's much more liked in the electorate. His approval ratings are just much higher than Hillary Clinton's uh, ever were, um, and I think that that kind of uh, folksiness that Biden uh, embraces is seen as much more genuine than any attempts that Hillary Clinton uh, may have made uh, weekly in uh, 2016 uh, to kind of make herself a more likable uh, figure. And perhaps there's a gendered frame to that as well. I wouldn't uh, want to deny that. But I think, you know, um, Biden's support uh, among older voters actually predates the pandemic. So Biden was doing uh, much better than Clinton was among over 65 voters, um, even in hypothetical matchup polls against Trump before Biden clinched the nomination. And so there's something about Biden uh, that makes him appealing. He's the first Democrat since Al Gore to be leading amongst older voters. And that's going to be a major 
strength for him, I think. Um, and I think when we talk about non-college educated whites, uh, that's a disproportionately older electorate. And I think that there are, there are some votes to be won there by Biden. And I think it's particularly amongst that age cohort. Okay, thanks, uh, Richard. Wendy, if I can come to you. I um, agree with much of what Richard has just said uh, to Ella's question. And I would add that I think we tend to be overcomplicating what happened in 2016. Hillary Clinton lost because she ran a bad campaign. She ignored some key states where she lost by very small margin, and that's what gave Trump the Electoral College win. She also lost because for 25 years, there was a significant segment of the population that really severely disliked Hillary Clinton for whatever reason. And I can tell you that I know a fair number of liberal democratic women who voted for her quite reluctantly. To Ella's point that are we talking too much about uh, personal issues and not too much about politics? Politics is personal, especially now with 170,000 people dying and we're still counting and who knows how many people disabled and who knows how many of their families and friends are affected by this. Who knows how many people, well, we sort of do know how many people are really suffering economically. So politics is very personal right now. And the contrast between what majorities agree is Trump's dishonesty and his utter lack of compassion with, with Biden's um, presentation of himself. And it's, and it's a decades long presentation of himself as a caring, empathetic person that people can relate to on a personal level is very <laughs> important. People will vote partly on the basis of that. I just want to make a few comments about the question that was asked initially about Maybe how Democrats may appeal, may appeal to working class voters. And I, you know, I just want to say that politicians, whether they're running for the Senate, the House, presidency, they don't think about it in macro terms. They're thinking about it in more micro terms. They're looking at the places in which they're running. They're looking at, you know, where, what's the margin that Trump won by here? How many voters do I have to peel off? What are the issues in this community that I have to talk about in order to try to peel them off? So there's really no general answer to the question of how do you get um, the, Pellin is right, the increasingly small number of swing voters. It's a much more, my specific micro analysis. One of the groups that I think Democrats will be focusing on are people who regret voting for Trump. And you see that in the Lincoln Project, you see that in, um, in a bunch of anti-Republican groups, and you see it in some suburban women. And you, and, and you see Trump's lack of understanding about that with his incredibly anachronistic appeals to suburban housewives. Okay, thanks. Um, I'm going to come out in a minute for one last round of questions. So if you have anything that you want to uh, get out, ask or make a point, then do get your hand up now. Um, but Sorab, do you just have a, a, a quick thought before we come back out to the audience? Yeah, I mean, first of all, the Lincoln Project was just mentioned is purely a project of uh, Republican kind of consultant class elites. It, it does. It's it is celebrated by MSNBC and New York Times and Wendy Kavanagh. It's not it has zero sort of impact on, on a wider sphere. But I want to answer um, Jenny's point about the fact that um, are people afraid to share their views? Um, you mentioned, uh, uh, Alistair, our, uh, the fact that polls show that 60% of Americans, including a majority of Democrats, are afraid to share their political views. 
um, due to the cancel culture, so-called. Um, that's a reality, and I just, I'm, I'm certain that will play out um, uh, in the election in ways that uh, will surprise uh, confident men and women of the left. Uh, look, uh, we've seen a situation in which uh, the elite media uh, and, uh, and blue state mayors and uh, governors, democratic mayors and governors, are essentially creating a, a new caste system in American society. Right, you see it. Uh, uh, if you come out to a open our businesses protest, the headline that will run uh, uh, from mainstream media will say, "Trump supporters or whatever right wingers come out for for reopening, defying warnings, experts' warnings about health and and, and uh, social distancing." But if you see a, a kind of whatever Black Trans Lives Matter protest in Brooklyn. The same outlet will frame it as courageous dissidents stand up for racial justice. No mention of social distancing. Uh, if you're an Orthodox Jew in New York, the mayor will bring down all the power of New York City government because you held a small funeral. Whereas New York City's uh, contact tracers have been instructed not to ask people about their participation in recent rioting or protests, uh, I apologize, for black lives. Uh, we've seen instance after instance in urban America of utter lawlessness, of people being beaten, pulled out of cars by these like Antifa checkpoints and if they and they've threatened with their lives and beaten horribly, statues torn down lawlessly, whether they're despicable figures like uh, like General Lee or or uh, Frederick Douglass, who is now cancelable. That's okay. May, blue state mayors, the media will not call that out. On the other hand, in Washington, D.C., a small group of pro-life protesters chalked a message in front of a Planned Parenthood uh, abortion mill and were arrested by Washington police. So people notice this stuff. They won't say anything because you know what it's like. If you say the wrong thing, you will lose your job. You'll be denounced on Twitter. Even if you're a nobody, you know, they will find your real life and say, this was the person who opposed social distancing or who, who has sec other thoughts about whether we should abolish the police or not. Um, and that will filter out in, in, in come election time. So again, I'm not saying Trump's gonna win. I'm just saying my, my liberal friends, don't be so confident. Okay, thanks, uh, Zorab. So I'm going to come out for one last round of questions. Sorry to the panel, we're just going to run over the, the uh, 8.30 mark a little bit. So if you can stick around for another 10 minutes or so, um, that, that would be great. So let's go through. So I've got Rob, then Richard, then Paul, and then Nico. Um, so Rob, uh, off you go. Uh, thanks very much. I um, was very glad that Jenny mentioned the economy and Ella Help, uh, mentioned um, healthcare because I think that those are two bread and butter issues. Um, and th I don't understand what's going on with healthcare, particularly um, in, in the political environment. I wondered, first of all, on the economy, whether there's any sense that either camp has any grip on or any answers to the, the, the problems of the economy, um, because it's, it seems like nothing very much has changed. And in terms of the kind of blue collar people, that Trump uh, voted for Trump last time around. I'm thinking particularly the coal miners, that coal has actually just gone through the floor uh, under his presidency, that, that there doesn't seem to be any sort of idea of a, uh, a, an economic solution or a path out of that general decline. Um, and secondly, in terms of 
the, the issue that I always think of as, as probably the most elite issue in many ways is the environment uh, and how much that is a, a factor in this election at all. Because uh, particularly in, re in relation to the California blackouts, here is, a, here is a state that has a GDP bigger than the UK on its own and that can't even keep the air conditioning on during a heat wave. Um, does that, the problem of the practicalities of dealing with uh, environmental problems, is that going to become in any way an issue, do you think? Okay, thanks, Rob. Um, Richard, if I come to you next, please. Well, uh, a couple of quick comments. I mean, I could talk on about this forever, but uh, a couple of quick comments would be, uh, I was a psychotherapist for 27 years, and uh, every single colleague of mine, every single psychiatrist I've ever heard from in the country making comments, all you have to do is take a look at the two personalities that are running for president. This is like ridiculously black and white. If anybody knows the entire developmental history, psychological developmental history of Donald Trump, and witnessed his present behavior for the last three and a half years and talked to anybody from New York who's seen his behavior for 20 or 40 years in New York, if anybody has seen all of this and they still believe he's psychologically acceptable to be the leader of the free world versus somebody like Joe Biden and his psychological life and history and the way he relates to human beings, if you still think they're in the same ballpark, then the question is over. There's no use in talking about this at all. Forget about the issues. It's about the man. It's about the type of person you're wanting to lead you and the free world. That's all I have to say about that. Because if you want to, you can get into the depth of the analysis of this man. And it's, it's, it's totally unacceptable. He is totally unacceptable to be the leader of anything, much less the free world. That's all right. I have to say. Thanks, Richard. Um, Paul, if I can come to you next. Hi. <clears throat> Thanks, Alistair. Uh, my question for the whole panel is whether anyone sees a scenario where political division in the US lessens after the election in November, um, or was 2016 a watershed moment that's going to play out regardless of who wins? Uh, because I, I quite like Sir Rob's characterization that 2016 was a moment where um, a lot of people said, even if it wasn't a majority, that the political consensus of the past half century simply didn't represent their views. And that problem doesn't just go away if Joe Biden wins. Um, thank you. Okay, thanks, Paul. So panel, I'm gonna come back to you in a minute um, for answer anything uh, that you've heard in this batch of questions and just give us something to take away uh, with. And I'll, I'll uh, come in the order that you spoke at the start. Um, but first, let's uh, take final question from Nico. Nico, off you go. Um, I'm struck by how little over the last four years, Democrats particularly seem to have engaged actually in Trump's policies and maybe in a kind of post-truth era, then that's not really where the politics is to be fought. But uh, the issue of the economy, which Rob Lyons brought up and uh, has been brought up by another question, I, I would be really interested to know what the panelists views were or assessment were of his actual economic policy because obviously when you listen to Trump you look at what's happening to the S&P and uh, you know, the Dow and so on everything looks rosy Covid aside and yet it's very difficult to see what policies he's put in place which actually really create growth really uh, embed innovation 
uh, really develop infrastructure, really optimize trade, um, or you know, uh, get the economy ready for the fourth industrial revolution, if we believe in such a concept. Um, you know, his push to reshore industry seems to be very, um, uh, very thin when you look at the factories that are supposed to have come back to the US often they're actually really kind of potemkin factories. Um, he doesn't really seem to understand technology and innovation. Um, it's a ridiculous idea of now uh, trying to stop WeChat from being used by American citizens is particularly weird. Uh, but I don't want to be pejorative. I very much like to have people's thoughts on actually what's the truth behind his economic record in terms of growth, job creation and innovation. Okay, thanks, Nico. So there's lots of big questions there, and there's actually been very, some very good uh, comments and questions in the chat as well, which uh, I can't uh, uh, recount uh, here, but it's particularly interesting one I thought was whether um, Kamala uh, getting the nomination and, and, and also Saunders being defeated in, uh, for, in, in terms of his nomination, uh, whether that kills off the populist left uh, in, in the future. Perhaps not one, a question to answer just now, but one to, to, to certainly consider. So let me come back to the panel for uh, just final thoughts. Pick up if you want on anything that's been, uh, in, in, any questions that you've heard there, but really just give us um, something to take away and think about over the next three months in the, in the, in the lead up to the elections. So Sorab, if I can come to you first. Yeah, I guess I would try to weave in a bunch of those questions without taking too long, I promise. Um, but um, there was a question earlier about Trump's foreign policy, um, and I think it goes to the last question that was asked uh, 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 by, um, by Nico about uh, uh, his trade policy. Um, and I think that's where you see the real realignment of American politics. The fact that, by and large, the Democratic Party has become the party of the professional managerial elite, uh, the people who um, uh, who will be fine, by the way, if we defund the police because they live in neighborhoods that are safe, uh, who are the people who, uh, who like political correctness because it's a system, it's like learning manners for them. It's the same way that, you know, you learn which fork to use when you're at a formal dinner party. For them, uh, this kind of PC atmosphere is, is a new, it's a new all-encompassing social ethic. Um, and you have a party, that's the party, Republican Party, in an uncomfortable way, and not in a full transformation, has become the party of working and middle classes. Um, and uh, that's reflected in Trump's foreign policy. I do think there is a doctrine there, and that doctrine is that, uh, uh, the, the, the foreign, Trump foreign policy doctrine is that nation states still are the most important force in global affairs, not transnational institutions, not the Paris Accord, this and that, but nation states with their interests. Um, and that nations should serve the interests of their own citizens and try to cooperate as much as they can on a global sphere, but not on a kind of idealistic basis. And they should see, see realities. So Trump looks at NATO and he's like, wait, Germans by and large would side with Russia or remain neutral in the case if they're polled about a, about a hypothetical conflict between the United States and Russia. Why are we obsessed with keeping troops in Germany? Meanwhile, Poles are very pro-American and they have a real threat next door in the form of the Kremlin. Or, you know, the, the, the 
uh, elite consensus that Biden very much represents, and I hope Trump really harps on this in the next three months, is, is integrating China into the, into the global economic system, even though China cheats, even though it's a monstrous totalitarian regime that keeps a million Muslims in open-air concentration camps, and even though it's devastated the American heartland. So has he gone about all of this perfectly? No, but there is a thread there, and that's just a kind of affinity for America, for, for, for the middle of the country, for the heartland. Um, and and uh, it, again, I think it, it's striking how, how different it is from what you hear, the rhetoric you hear from the Democratic National Convention, where I was just watching footage where the LGBT caucus was talking. This is the mainstream of the Democratic Party, was talking about abolishing prisons, abolishing the police, abolishing immigration customs enforcement. That's so bonkers, that's so distant from mainstream American life that, um, again, all I have to say is I think uh, any sense that, that this, this election is a foregone conclusion is mistaken. Thank you. Thanks, uh, Sora. Wendy, can I come to you just for a, a final thought? Give us something to take away. Um, first, uh, I want to make a comment about the question that was asked about the environmental vote. I think we're going to find out in uh, this year how important that vote is. I think if there is an environmental vote, it will go to Democrats. What economic answers are they offering? I think we're going to hear a lot of talk about the need to build infrastructure, which is extreme, and uh, green energy sources that will create new jobs. There was a question about will our political divisions end if Biden is elected? Absolutely not. We are going to have severe and maybe violent political divisions for a long time, for the foreseeable future, as far as I can tell. And it is extremely worrisome. Um, what is the through line between, you know, for Trump's foreign policy, for his domestic policy? A couple of people have asked about that. I think the through line is always Trump's self-interest. It is never ideological. Where does he want to have a hotel branded? What's good for his global business? Which leader, which dictator is flattering him? I think the through line for everything is Trump's self-interest. As far as his concern for working people, he's been ripping them off all his life. If you look at Trump University, if you look at his casinos, you know, he's a con artist and he's always ripped off working class people. Finally, I just want to stress what an awful, bizarre time we are living through. We're coming up against maybe 200,000 deaths. We don't know how many people have been disabled by this disease. We still don't have an effective treatment for it. We don't know how many people will even take a vaccine if one is available or how effective it will be. For me, this feels a little bit, this whole period feels a little bit like post 9-11 when I was reading the newspaper every day and crying as I read the obituaries of people who were killed on 9-11. It is an awful grief-stricken time. And we have a president who tells us that everything is wonderful. The economy is great, he tells us, though there's widespread devastation. He's done a great job with the pandemic, though America is doing worse than just about any other Western country. And I think in part, the election is gonna be a test of the effectiveness of Trump's reality altering machine. Okay, thanks, Wendy. Uh, Michael, um, your final thought. I think this overwhelming, almost monomaniacal fixation on Trump's personality traits and the presumption that it's the sole explanatory vehicle we need to understand his, his governance is a little bit tedious, 
particularly in the minds of voters who don't really have a whole lot of confusion as to who Trump is. So it's not as though that needs to be hammered home to them incessantly, which it, it often is in the commentariat and definitely in the, in the Democratic Party. Um, but there was a, a question raised by Paul about the notion of divisions potentially lessening in 2021, should there be a Democratic president. I think divisions may lessen in total, but the contours of the divisions will shift. So the divisions definitely won't evaporate. But I think, you know, take this for instance. I mean, the, the elites of the United, the, the elite classes of the United States, to the extent that we can generalize them, uh, in terms of the national security state, in terms of the media, they never accepted the legitimacy of Trump's election in the first place. I mean, they may have technically accepted its legality, but even there is an open question because you have plenty of people who assumed right off the bat that Trump was Ill illegitimately installed into office by a foreign power. And so you had the resistance start right off the bat. You had the series of machinations that culminated in the impeachment of Trump on partly on the basis of a collusion theory, which really has no merit. Um, and so that enshrined a precedent where you can have now aggrieved Republicans, potentially, once they're in the opposition, making use of very similar tactics against potentially a, a Joe Biden or Kamala Harris, notwithstanding Biden himself being somewhat less of, a, of an incendiary figure. And a lot of the division since Trump has been elected has been stoked by an animated and energized left-wing movement, which probably won't have as much energy behind it in the event of a Democratic president being in office. Will there be some? Yeah, sure. But the overarching uh, specter of Trump as this historic fascist menace in their minds really kind of creates a foundation where left-wing radicalism flourishes. And I think you'll see that dissipate to some extent. But on the other hand, you probably will see a radicalized right-wing movement, at least along the mar around the margins, who react to things like this anti-racism ideology, which is explicitly trying, if you read the book White Fragility by Robin D'Angelo, to cultivate what she calls a white consciousness or a white racial identity in order to, as she puts it, combat racism against non-whites, but you don't have to be really immersed in the literature of uh, right-wing reactionaries to see how that could create a certain backlash. So to the extent that that becomes, becomes mainstreamed in a democratic administration, you're going to see forces of division who perceive it in, in a way that uh, enlivens them to take some potentially divisive action. Can we leave it there? Is that sure? Yeah? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Thanks, because that was a really. Useful... I, I I could always go on further. No, no, no. It was a really useful uh, summing up, I think, and 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 uh, actually, there's so much that's come out of this conversation to take away and think about. I think that's been one of the the, the really useful things about the last uh, hour and a half. But let me come to Richard uh, for your final thoughts. Am I unmuted? Yeah. Yes. Um, so I think so there are a few points and questions about the economy. And I think it's an interesting question. You know, Trump was elected in 2016 with bold promises on economic renewal, particularly for the Rust Belt. Um, and 
you know, the evidence is that coal country is, is still economically distressed. Does that mean that those voters are going to turn against Trump? And the evidence uh, from academic study on this is that the economy is increasingly viewed, the health of the economy is increasingly viewed through a partisan lens in America. So you can look at studies that were done during the Obama presidency, where particularly, let's take a, a very loyal demographic uh, of, of voters, African-American voters. Uh, there was a study done which looked at, at African-American voters whose um, objective economic circumstances had, were worse at a particular juncture when the study was done in the Obama presidency compared to when George Bush was president. But their optimism about the economy was much higher. Um, and this is partly because voters um, who, are, who share the same kind of partisan uh, affiliation as, as, the, as the president uh, tend to have a rosier outlook, tend to look at the economy uh, through a rosier lens. And we can see that Trump's base remains very enthused by him. One of the polls that I looked at recently showed that something like nearly two thirds, certainly three, three fifths of Trump voters say they are very enthusiastic about voting for Trump. Whereas fewer than half of Joe Biden voters said they are very enthusiastic about voting uh, for Biden. Um, so that, that, I think that's one thing to keep in mind. I think the second thing I wanted to uh, just comment on was this question about post-election divisions, and I wanted to tie in uh, uh, healthcare because there's been a recent development um, where the Supreme Court uh, has just announced that they will be hearing oral arguments in a case about the constitutionality of Obamacare, and those arguments will take place uh, on the 10th of November, seven days after the election. Um, and I think there's a real possibility that this time the Supreme Court uh, could, could do serious, potentially fatal damage to the Obamacare uh, legislation. In 2012, they had a similar case about the constitutionality. And to everyone's surprise, Chief Justice John Roberts joined on with the four liberals to save it. But I think the circumstances of that were somewhat different because that, were, that took place in the middle of the 2012 uh, presidential election. And this case is going to take place after the presidential election. Uh, and so I think that uh, judicial politics, which at the moment has been somewhat submerged uh, in our discussions, is going to rear itself uh, in quite a dramatic way, whoever wins the presidential uh, election in November. Okay, thanks, uh, Richard. Quite a sober warning for the times ahead. Um, Helen, uh, your final thoughts, please. Okay, so uh, a few things to come back on. I think on the economy, um, the I do think the economy is the thing to watch. I think that the, uh, you know, Trump's real success up until now, I think, is based on uh, some liberalisation tax policy and the massive expansion of corporate debt. Um, I don't pretend to be an e economist, but I do think that's uh, pretty important. I think in terms of some of his kind of foreign policy economic policies, I don't think there's a huge difference between uh, Biden and um, Trump. They're both very anti-Chinese, and I think that kind of autarkic tendency will continue whoever gets into power. So that's just a few things to keep an eye on. But I think in terms of who gets blamed for the COVID recession, I think is very, very important to try to understand. 
Um, you could look at something like college football, which I know British people don't understand college football, but in flyover states like Wisconsin and Ohio, it's the life and blood of society and it's just been cancelled until next year. It's it will be very interesting to see who gets blamed for that. Is it the Democrats who've, you know, closed down all these things or is it Trump because he let the pandemic get out of control? And I think those kind of issues which really impact people's lives and obviously unemployment and jobs, I think are quite interesting issues uh, to look at. I think um, one thing I disagreed with, with in, someone in the conversation said that I do, one of the things I do think we should note is I do think that the Black Lives Matter thing was a bit of a watershed in terms of um, people's views. I don't think the overwhelming uh, reaction to it was fearful. I think it was surprise and it was almost like people pushing against an open door um, in terms of how uh, it became so such a widespread sort of acceptance of a view. And I think that um, Part of that is because it, is, it was so, there were so many young kids involved in it. I and mean, if you went to the protests in DC, it was just full of school kids. Um, and I'm, I believe it was similar in, in the UK. And I think that that's something that took the whole of America a bit by surprise. And I don't think people quite know what to have made of that, but I think it's made politicians a little bit, you know, it's, it's, it's changed the politics around that. And so I think rather than seeing fear um, I think people have, were more surprised and perplexed by it. I do want to finish on this thing about whether people are afraid of sharing their views. I think if you think the last election was hard uh, because journalists never went out of the bubble um, and stayed within the beltway to report the election, it's going to be even harder. And, and so we never knew what Trump voters were thinking about. We never went and asked them in Wisconsin. We never went and asked them in uh, uh, you know, Pennsylvania or wherever. I think if it was hard before, it's harder now because the ability to travel around and really get a sense of what's happening in such a kind of atomized environment that COVID has created, I think is even more difficult. I think whenever uh, I was watching a BBC reporter reporting after um, uh, some one of the Democrats gave their speech, uh, Kamala Harris gave her first speech um, last week on, on becoming the vice president of getting the nomination. And he was asked, what, what's the reaction of people in, in DC or in, in America? And he pontificated on about the reaction of people in America. I don't know how he knows. I mean, he's sitting in his bedroom in Washington the same way that, you know, all the rest of us are sitting in our bedroom in Washington. And I think that it's going to be a very difficult um, uh, election to make sense of partly because of COVID. And I know, you know, I'm trying to get my reporting teams out to Arizona, Wisconsin, Florida, but I think it's still, you know, it, it isn't as though we're hearing all the voices. And so I think if people are afraid of sharing their voices, we, we may find a big surprise. But I do think things have shifted a bit, but I think it's, it's something to watch. So um, thanks to all the panel. That was, uh, I think, really useful. And certainly um, I'm going to go away from this discussion with uh, lots of things to think about, lots of questions, but also insights in terms of uh, how to arrive at some answers over the next three months. So that was just 
fantastically useful, as I say. Um, in terms of Academy of Ideas, uh, keep an eye on the website over the coming uh, weeks and, well, months. <laughs> Are we going to be in this lockdown for more months? Hopefully not. But um, we're going to continue for as long as we need to do these types of debates. So do keep an eye on the website for what's coming up in terms of book clubs and salon discussions. Um, a reminder, uh, if you can help us out with a donation, uh, then do go to the website and visit uh, academyofideas.org.uk forward slash donate. Uh, anything that you can give us, either small amount or large amount, be hugely appreciated just to keep us going over the next period. Um, that's really all from, from, from me, I think. Uh, panel have been fantastic. Thanks again. Um, stick around, anybody who wants to chat. Uh, over, you know, we'll keep the we'll keep the zoom on for the next 15 minutes or so. So if you want to uh, mingle, as it were, seems we can go to the pub for a pint. Then um, let's do that. Um, but hope to see you again soon. Thanks. <laughs>